women and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio. And for our program today, we have myself, Jacob. And me, Chloe. Good morning. Now, before I announce what we have um, coming up um, for the program, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to pay our respect um, to any elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that this always was, always will be, Aboriginal land and that sovereignty um, was never ceded. Right, so we're um, for our program today, I guess... Want to kind of start a bit of, I guess, a kind of discussion about some of the kind of notable kind of political developments that I guess have happened, I guess, in the past week. Now, one of the kind of, I guess, the kind of thing that is, as we always kind of have been saying every week, I mean, the main kind of thing that is dominating Australian politics at the moment is this COVID, is the COVID-19 pandemic. Especially given um, that Victoria and New South Wales looks like they're going to be, I think, in indefinite, not really indefinite lockdown, but I mean, they're going to basically, we're basically at going to be... At the moment it is indefinite. Well, yeah. yeah, at this point, yeah, because there's no announcement on when the, the lockdown will be lifted. Mm. And I guess I want to, um, I guess starting a bit of a kind of discussion about some of the kind of developments that have happened in the state of Victoria, which is where, obviously, we're... Um, presenting from in um, at the Free CR Community Radio, and I guess one of the one of the sort of interest one of the sort of recent kind of developments is um, it's clear that um, despite the fact that we're in this very strict lockdown, um, case numbers don't appear to be going down. In fact, the most recent kind of statistic. What was the most recent statistic, Chloe? Again, I think it was 170. Yeah, so it was around 170 cases, and now we actually... And two deaths. And two deaths, yeah. yeah. So when we looked, um, when we went back, um, going back to when this lockdown first started, and in fact, I can almost can't even remember when... I remember the, Donut Day. You, you bought donuts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll, well, we're kind of in this sort of situation where we thought that... Um, mm that COVID was um, eliminated yeah. and um, we successfully um, stayed no of it. Then there, there was a group of kind of mystery cases that popped up. And then, of course, that's when uh, the state essentially went into lockdown. And, in fact, the lockdown has been kept, has kept extending ever since then. In fact, it started around the start of August. And I guess one of the more interesting kind of things is, I guess, in, in terms of the context of um, the state government's strategy around COVID, the Victorian government has been, you know, to its credit, although I don't think it hasn't been without problems, we've mm. made lots of criticisms of the state government and Daniel Andrews on our program um, from a, you know, a socialist left-wing kind of perspective. And I guess, I mean, one of the kind of positive things about the state government's approach has been they've always kind of had, you know, an aim at attempting to eliminate COVID from the community. And in fact, we all lived through that, three to four month kind of lockdown last year um, where essentially it did achieve the, the um, had large numbers of cases 
huge massive outbreak and essentially they did through a very long kind of strict stage four lockdown they yeah, but did we, and we also had job keeper and job seeker yeah yeah definitely double in that time that that's what contributed to that successful yeah yeah as well yeah i think um chloe went from point because actually brings me up to kind of the next point so essentially um in terms of like the current kind of status quo it appears um that the daniel andrews government has abandoned um this elimination mm. strategy and I think that is, it is a bit of a shame. And I think it is a bit of a step backwards in some ways. Oh, but at the same time, um, you know, in terms of the con- the reality we're currently kind of in, it's quite clear that the federal government as a whole has completely given up on eliminating COVID. In fact, this is something we're going to be, I think we should have a bit of a broader political discussion about um, later on the program, like this whole kind of push to kind of reopen, um, you know, some of the some of the comments from Gladius Bekashuni um, yesterday was saying, you know, um, it, she started off by saying that we can't um, early on in the pandemic in terms of the out of control sort of outbreak saying things like we can't um, live, um, we can't live with the Delta variant in the community. And now mm. she's changed her tune to say, oh, well, when we open up, people are going to die, which is uh, yeah. <laughs> pretty um or um, reprehensible, I think, to, to go into kind of direction, especially since this clear outbreak is, you know, or the, the fact that the, um, the COVID-19 pandemic has gotten out of control. Now, I guess, I mean, two, I guess one of the problems is, uh, in terms of the state government, if there's only one state government that is committed to, that was trying to aim for kind of elimination and there's no federal government support, then I kind of would see that in terms of the viability of uh, eliminating COVID, uh, especially with the Delta variant being far more infectious, is in fury going to become less viable. I mean, yes, there are things that the Daniel Andrews government could be doing. Like, for example, they could be um, shutting down more kind of non-essential workplaces. Um, they could be um, implementing testing blitzes, except, um, more testing centres, i.e. like setting up kind of rapid kind of um, testing centres in um, particular areas where there's high numbers of cases. Of course, that is something that they have done in the past. So to give a bit of... Um, and of course, the other issue, obviously, as sort of Chloe brought up, is the fact that there's no... There isn't actually meaningful kind of income support, although yeah. there is the existence of the emergency payment, which, yeah. you know, some people are getting. Um, in fact, I'm getting it right now um, through the, all the lost um, childcare work um, that I've lost as a result of the kind of lockdown. But I mean, yeah, it's um, it's not it's definitely not sufficient compared to the job keeper slash job seeker kind of increases because you I mean the whole real lesson this pandemic is they've throughout this whole pandemic they've kind of gone on and we've had this kind of discussion before but you know they've constantly gone on about you know rule breakers people kind of not being complete um um compliant but then they but they don't but most of the the gap the cap the capitalist government within Australia. Um, does even like comprehend this sort of concept that you should be paying people um, to stay yeah. home. If you don't want people uh, to go into work while infected and potentially infect others or also affect their family, their loved ones, then actually you need to pay them to stay home. Like you can't, this moralising about people's kind of failures, etc. Well, not only are they not paying people to stay at home, they're fining people, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars, you know, for, for breaking the rules. Um, and some people just don't have a choice sometimes. I mean, I'm not condoning rule breakers. I'm not condoning people, um, you know, knowingly spreading the virus. It's just, yeah, it's just ridiculous how much they've they've put into these punitive measures to, to fight a, a public health issue. 
And I guess, I mean, another thing, going back to, I guess, the current kind of status quo with um, the Victorian government. So, yes, despite the fact that the state government in Victoria has essentially given up on an elimination mm-hmm. strategy, which, you know, is obviously a bit of a shame, the next, the funny kind of thing um, about it, though, is nothing's going to actually change in terms of restrictions. Yeah. Um, in fact... In fact, it's clear to me that we're probably going to be in lockdown until November 22nd or November 23rd. Yeah. Um, and the reason for that, and we're going to have a, probably a bit of a broader kind of discussion about the implications of the Doherty sort of plan, the kind of reop, um, the kind of reopening kind of strategy. Essentially, this lockdown is essentially going to be buying time until the vaccination rates go up. And in fact, the state government of Victoria has flagged that there is going to be some easing restrictions um, by September 26th or September 24th, I mean, I'm, I'm somewhere, a bit, around there. somewhere around yeah. there, when they hit the 70% um, vaccination target. Now, the thing about these easing restrictions, and this is where it kind of pays, if you're, if you're someone kind of reading the news and just <laughs> reading kind of like the headlines, you might get the impression that the restriction, the easing restrictions is probably going to be more significant than what it is if you, if you just read the headlines. But actually, the easing of restrictions that have been announced by the state government if they've um, reached a 70% um, target is, it's pretty minimal, really. It's essentially they are having, they're going to, you're going to be able to travel 10 kilometres um, outside your house. I think right they're now. opening parks. Um, they're opening up play, uh, actually, op- the opening up of playgrounds is happening this Friday oh, happening and now. Friday. Yeah. Um, they're returning that with, um, and in fact, playgrounds now, um, you can only, you have to be under 12 to play on a playground now. Okay. And there's also now encouraging, um, parents and so on who, um, and carers to use QR codes. So they're setting up like QR codes at every sort of playground. So that's the well, kind that's of an good. And they're removing the curfew, I think, as well. Oh, no, they're not removing the curfew. Oh, they. Oh, they will on the 23rd. Maybe, oh yeah, maybe they are removing the curfew. So oh, it depends on the vaccination. I think it rate. depends. I yeah. think it depends. But I, I haven't really heard that strong indication that they are cutting uh-huh. the curfew. But ba- basically, all the kind of easing restrictions um, that are happening mm-hmm. when we hit that 70% vaccination rate is essentially going to be kind of very minimal. And I think, yeah, this, the, I think the, it's clear that um, I almost kind of see my, my, a bit of a kind of speculation. I kind of almost feel that, um, that, you know, the government in some ways, because of every everything that sort of Scott Morrison is going on about in terms of kind of reopening and et cetera. And, of course, I acknowledge that at some point, you know, um, you know, I think, you know, we're going to have to go beyond sort of just this prolonged kind of lockdowns. Mm. But I think it's quite clear. I feel this is a bit of speculation. I almost kind of feel that they're making, in especially in the case of New South Wales, where they've implemented all sorts of punitive kind of policing measures of mm. um, migrant communities within the Western Sydney. It's almost like they have ma- they're attempting to set a context that lockdown is so unbearable for the majority yeah. of of people, uh, especially with no income support, especially with the fact that they're failing to contain the Delta variant, uh, despite the fact that, you know, countries like New Zealand are actually having some success in to containing their current outbreak. Yeah. Um, it's quite clear that I think they're ma- it's almost like they're making lockdown to be as painful as possible, um, especially without the lack of any income support, etc., that people are just going to kind of accept a sort of um, reopening, um, what, um, in the style of kind of the UK 
um, where there's potentially going to be an overflooding of the healthcare system, etc. And there will be deaths, although the deaths will be much smaller, thankfully, um, because of the because of the um, because of the vaccine. But I think, yeah, there's mm-hmm. almost like they're normalising, yeah, making lockdown as intolerable as possible. That the majority of people are going to accept it. And I think I have to acknowledge that, you know, for a lot of us who are currently experiencing lockdown, you know, a lot of people are getting fatigued with lockdown and disproportionately lockdown is going to be impacting worse on you know the essential people who have to go to work essential workers um working class people and you know but even then it's it's still a a difficulty for people who are maybe in the kind of white collar thing because you know there's a certain relative privilege of people who are able to kind of work from home but of course the capitalist class has um are trying to kind of find ways of getting more work at it like it's, it's, it's the like, best we can achieve under uh, capitalism yeah there. it's almost like um during one of the kind of trends of this pandemic and this is kind of a theme that's probably worth kind of exploring in the future it's almost like there's been within the workplace there's almost been this push like we're in a pandemic you know people are dying people are getting infected people are getting sick you know all around the kind of world yet the perspective of the capitalists is we're not going to take things easy here no. We're just going to make sure you work as as hard as you possibly can, and you're still if you're a essential worker, you still have to go into work. If you're working for home, we're just going to give you more work. And and also have you um, bear the expenses of working from home? Yeah, like, it's not like employers are passing all the expenses um, that would have been, um, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, like you know, it would have been. Um, yeah, the the employer wouldn't have had to pay for things like the internet and you know like like working from home like office their office supplies and um, yeah just everything that comes with working from home that is that is actually the worker is actually bearing the brunt of that not the employer so in a lot of cases employers do have a lot of power over employers in this whole working from home um, you know time yeah yeah so I think yeah that's um, I think. That's, a, I think, just my kind of, I think, um, our summary of, mm. I guess, the current sort of COVID-19 panic situation. It's right now they're getting up to thousands of cases of New South Wales. I've heard that from uh, epidemiologists that the cases are probably expected to peak at 4,000 a day in October, which mm. is going to be next month. And there's also going to be, um, I guess, another complication is um, in Victoria. I heard that the cases are likely to peak at 200. Now, just a bit of optimism. I'm sort of hoping that maybe um, the cases peak to a certain point um, in, in the case of Melbourne. And it's mm. potentially possible that, you know, the cases could drop, um, especially with the, the effects of the of the prolonged kind of lockdown. But anyway. But it's, it's interesting all... how restrictions and lockdowns are, like especially in, in the state of Victoria, it, it's now dependent on vaccination rates as opposed to cases. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, they, mm. it's not like, as I sort of said, I sort of, this is where why I haven't been that critical mm. or harsh on the Victorian government's context because really, as I kind of said, it doesn't appear yeah. to me that they're easing any sort of restrictions in any meaningful way. And in fact, right. some of the restrictions they are easing, you know, some of those um, measures could actually be justified even in the context of trying to drive down cases to zero. So that's just the, the situation. And getting to a 70% vaccination um, rate is actually quite quite difficult. Mm. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I think it's it's looking likely that we'll... I think um, just looking just um, in terms of that um, sort of roadmap, um, in terms of the vaccination rates, um, just for listeners' kind of information, it's looking likely that 
most of the country, like all the different kind of states, will reach kind of 80% vaccination rate by December and 80% vaccination rate as in um, all of the eligible adults who get their um, their double dose of the vaccine. Um, so in some sense, that doesn't include children. So in actual fact, um, 80% vaccination is, in theory, only really 56% of the population because there's a significant section that is not necessarily going to be included in that, which includes children and teenagers, although that said, they are expanding the vaccine rollout to uh, teenagers and children, to the government's credit, which is, I think, a good thing. And then the other... Um, the, but it's looking likely that the 80% vaccination rate is sort of going to be hit by December across most states. So mm. New South Wales will hit it first in October. Um, then it'll be followed by, I think, Queensland, Darwin and Canberra. And then I think Melbourne is sort of a bit later towards mid wow. sort of November. So, or as in Victoria. Um, so that's, um, that's, okay, it's the current kind of situation. So yeah, we'll have a bit more discussion about this sort of, um, this question around reopening and the issues with the healthcare system and so on. Um, but yeah, and I go might... get go get dosed if you haven't already. Well, maybe that might be a suitable time to play this announcement. Yep. Um, you are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR Community Radio. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio. And, um, yeah, Chloe, maybe you can start off. Oh, I was just going to say that I've, I've got my first dose of, um, yeah, the COVID vaccine. Um, and, yeah, it was just a bit painful. Like, my arm hurt a little bit, but it wasn't. I didn't really feel much at yeah. all. Yeah, I also got my COVID vaccine um, just about, I think, several weeks ago. In fact, I think it was mm. last month, actually. Um, and in fact, actually, just one <laughs> sort of thing I forgot, because I, I got the AstraZeneca and um, Chloe, I think, got the Pfizer. Mm. And one of the things that has changed is um, when you get the AstraZeneca, usually the second dose takes up to 12 weeks to get. I mean, sort of recommended 12 weeks, so those six weeks is also... Um, generally fine. So basically, anyway, the Victorian state government has announced that um, those who have gotten the AstraZeneca should be um, able to get their second shot within six weeks after their first appointment. So, um, if you, if any listeners have um, have got the AstraZeneca or only on the first shot, it's probably worth calling up your GP or the medical centre that you got your vaccine from and see if you can schedule in your second shot. Um, as soon as possible, because I think, I mean, getting the second shot is probably the most important yeah. in terms of the AstraZeneca, because, um, yeah, the, um, in terms of, like, comparing the science of the different kind of vaccines, um, the Pfizer is more effective on its first dose than the AstraZeneca. Uh, but the um, when it comes to when you get your... And also the, the benefit of the Pfizer is you can get your second shot far sooner. Mm-hmm. But with the AstraZeneca, when you get your... Um, even though your second shot takes... Um, as longer than the Pfizer, um, the effectiveness and protection is 
about as effective as the Pfizer. And in fact, there's actually some research, although I'm not, you know, an expert on this. There has been some research that suggests the AstraZeneca might be more effective long term because mm. one of the issues with the COVID vaccines is they will require booster shots because their effectiveness doesn't necessarily last for the full like it doesn't necessarily last beyond um, I think six to twelve months or maybe a year. I think that's oh no now I've got vaccine envy. <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah, so that's that's um, that's that's um, being um, that's sort of the case. But um, yeah, it's going to be it remains to be seen how that's going to work with the with the sort of different variants that are sort of popping up and and so on. But we'll yeah, have it's, a bit. It's, it's interesting how so many people um, look into the different vaccines. I've never I don't think there's ever been a time in history where. You know, there's been a disease and people care about, like, the label or the type of vaccine that they're going to get. They'll just get what's available. It's mm. just the first time that there's, mm. there's so many different options and we're so privileged here. Yeah. Just Well, you actually bring yeah. up a good point. Actually, the reason why that's the case is because we live under the capitalist system. Mm, and, yeah. of course, all of these vaccines were produced by pharmaceutical private kind of companies and they essentially got millions and billions of dollars of mm. handouts um, from the governments to essentially produce the vaccines. And one of the kind of things, there's all this emphasis on brands because in actual fact, these these um, these com- um, these companies are actually trying to build their brand for yeah. their vaccines. Like the, the big irony is um, one of the funny ones was with the AstraZeneca. So the AstraZeneca is named after the company um, that got it recently, and now they've actually just recently changed the name of the AstraZeneca because of obviously we had a bit of a discussion about this on one of our programs because of mm. all the the fear about the blood clot issue, etc. Right, yeah. They essentially yeah <laughs> stuffed up the marketing for what the government in the federal government in fear essentially stuffed up the marketing for yeah. um, the AstraZeneca <laughs> vaccine and yeah it's yeah sort of, scared a lot of people. Yeah, like COVID nineteen actually can give you blood clots. Yeah like, yeah yeah just, you have a higher chance of getting blood yeah. clots from um from um the um, COVID. Nineteen than than the AstraZeneca. Anyway, I actually forgot what the um the the new name of the AstraZeneca is, but yeah, that's um that's I think a really sort of good point. But I think yeah, it's definitely in the mm. context of the capitalist neoliberal system we live under. Yeah. Anyway, I just um I thought just for our listeners um for our program would play a bit of a, a speech by um U.S. socialist and um, Green Left correspondent Malik Mia. He just recently spoke at a public forum that was organised by Green Left last Saturday, which is, um, which was titled um, a, um, a Left Perspective on the on the U.S. withdrawal in Afghanistan. And that forum took place on Saturday. You can actually view all the talks from that forum on the Green Left website at greenleft.org.au. But we're going to be playing um, a speech by um, Malik Mia from that for the next 13 minutes for our program. Um, hope you enjoy. You are listening to Green Left Radio. Uh, but let me just uh, start by uh, saying uh, since uh, August 15th, when the Taliban basically walked into uh, Kabul and the other cities, uh, and the former prime minister, Ghani, fled uh, from the country, events have moved so fast, it's caught uh, not only everyone, obviously, in Afghanistan, but in the U.S. as well, uh, unprepared for the new situation. I would say the most important point to understand is that after 20 years of war and the killing of tens of thousands of Afghan people by the U.S. and its allies, uh, they suffered a major uh, political defeat. 
I say political defeat because militarily uh, they didn't have the ability to drive the, uh, the U.S. military and others out of power, but they did have the ability to win the majority of Afghan people, even those who don't did not like the Taliban uh, from their previous rule to turn against the uh, puppet regime. And that to me is one of the most important uh, victories, not only for the people uh, fighting uh, against colonialism in Afghanistan, but around the world and a big defeat for the U.S. Uh, The fallout here uh, is uh, just unfolding because uh, President Biden uh, the Republicans, Democrats who run the country are bickering over whether this should have happened. But it's clear the ruling class here knew they could not win this war. In fact, I would say they knew this 10 years ago, or at least 10 years ago. Uh, and they just continued on knowing that the only way uh, to protect their interests was just to continue to bomb people and just uh, keep a military force there. But the price was uh, too high, and they made that decision. Now, even with the uh, suicide bombings yesterday or Thursday uh, in Kabul airport, uh, the response in the U.S., while on the one hand people are upset, they know that there's no winning strategy to go back into Afghanistan with troops. So what they did today was strike uh, you know, they, they, they launched what they call a retaliation and killed uh, one individual. Uh, they said it was ISIS. Who knows if that's true? But that's what they did. Uh, now, uh, the debate here is still unfolding because it has broader ramifications than just Afghanistan. It impacts the rest of the U.S. policy in the Middle East, uh, North Africa, and Asia, even though they deny it. Uh, but the, 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 it's clear that not only do other jihadists see it as a defeat, but other people who disagree with U.S. policy or British policy uh, see this as an opportunity to strengthen their hand. Now, <clears throat> one of the things that I think is important for those of us who've always opposed uh, the, the U.S. intervention in Afghanistan and in other countries uh, to recognize is that uh, it's important at this time to keep the pressure on uh, any type of intervention or further intervention uh, into Afghanistan. The first thing the U.S. did uh, in the World Bank and the IMF did was to cut off all fundings, all funds. And that's, that's uh, you know, considering that Afghanistan depended on a foreign aid and money, you're talking about up to $10 billion that was suddenly cut off. Seven billion from the U.S. alone, five billion from the IMF, or three billion from the IMF and World Bank uh, and other aid. So there's a problem with the drought in Afghanistan, and uh, and many other uh, issues that uh, you you have 14, maybe 20 million people who are hungry today. So that there's there's a big catastrophe. And one of the things the U.S. will probably do after Tuesday, the 31st, when they leave. I think the British, the Australians, and everyone else are leaving by tomorrow. Uh, But when the U.S. leaves the airport, uh, they're going to maintain these economic sanctions 
they're going to continue bombing like they did today, uh, and it's going to make the thing worse. Now, <clears throat> whatever happens inside Afghanistan politically, and that's un- unclear, uh, I mean, the Taliban is the strongest force, but there are other political actors, other political forces. I'm not talking just about ISIS or uh, Al-Qaeda. There are other people who are obviously organizing and have their own interests. Uh, the imperialism will continue to put this this kind of pressure on the, on the people, which will affect not just the Taliban, but, you know, rural areas, peasants, workers, women who they like to pretend to support, and other people. So one of the demands that can be made uh, is, I think, is very important, is that these uh, economic sanctions be uh, lifted, and that the uh, the money be turned over to whatever government is established. Uh, aid continue to flow uh, into Afghanistan, especially for the on the ground organizations, uh, whether it's uh, uh, the UN or others that make sure people are fed, and uh, you know support whatever other methods that, that will help the people. That, that must be done and is important. Now, the other point I wanted to make is that about the U.S. approach, and, and this has big ramifications too. Uh, the U.S. policy didn't begin, uh, you know, in the last year. Or, uh, there's a lot of debate here that Donald Trump, the former president, initiate, initiated this a year ago in February uh, with the Taliban and, the, and, and that he was going to withdraw and Biden was uh, upholding it. The, the the reality is that the U.S., as I say, couldn't win this war militarily, uh, and that's been known for more than 10 years. Uh, the, the significance of this is that to understand this policy and why it's defeated so is important because it originated in 9-11-2001 after that, that attack in, in New York. Uh, the U.S. made a shift in its uh, fight against uh, what they call uh, terrorists uh, when they established a, a new program or new uh, security state apparatus uh, to fight the, what they call the war on terror. Now, the war on terror was never about al-Qaeda. It was never about bin Laden. And it definitely wasn't about the Taliban. The war on terror was the new way for the, the imperial rulers of the U.S. and its allies to go after anyone they considered a threat to their interests, especially in the Middle East, uh, South Asia, uh, Asia as a whole, which is why the strategy evolved from uh, sending troops to Tal- Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria to uh, assist this bombing campaign in all these countries that continue to this day, where they don't even have bases, like in North Africa. So that was the war on terror, which is not let up. That is the debate here. Is the war on terror cannot be let up? We need to continue going after what they call terrorists. Even though it failed to work in Afghanistan, didn't work really in Iraq or Syria, but that is that is how they look at it. And, the, and it's likely they will add more resources to it. But the, but the reality is the U.S. empire is really in decline because just bombing people and killing people you call terrorists has only uh, showed your weakness because they, they they know the American people are, can only sustain uh, uh, occupations of 100,000 troops for so long. 
So the strategy has always been let's do use special forces and bombs. That didn't work. And in Afghanistan, which did not have the military weapon, didn't have an air force, didn't have any of that, was able to sustain a 20-year struggle uh, and weaken the American occupiers and eventually win. And I think others around the Middle East and other places see that. And that's uh, that's very important. Now, how it will unfold, we don't know. I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. Uh, but one thing for sure, inside Afghanistan, Afghanistan, the next period, there will be some political conflict. There will be some uh, new struggles. And for anyone to say they know what will happen, that would be a mistake. Uh, the other point that should be known uh, this, to recognize is that it's a mistake to look at this as though Afghanistan is like 20 years ago, which is a, something that the media here talks about all the time. Afghanistan, the Taliban even, is not the same group as it was 20 years ago. I mean, it has the same vision. Uh, it's, its idea of Islam is the same it had then. But it, it, 20 years is a long time. They have a lot more sophisticated people who have joined. Clearly, there were many Taliban people in government, in the military, in the police, in universities who worked in different urban areas, definitely in Kabul. Uh, many things I've read and seen and heard interviews, there, there were a lot of people who uh, worked inside uh, Kabul who were pro-Taliban and against the U.S. war effort. So we'll see what happens with that, what type of government they form, how they respond to attacks. Fundamentally, in my view, uh, the Taliban is a nationalist organization, even with its religious views, uh, Afghan nationalist group. It never agreed with ISIS, even in, at its heyday when it was in Syria and Iraq. Uh, it, it was friendly to al-Qaeda, uh, because uh, on the question of uh, Islam, they both agree that all Muslims should, uh, you know, function uh, peacefully together where ISIS wants to kill all non-Sunnis or anyone who doesn't agree with them. So the Taliban, you know, we'll see. Uh, and we'll see how the uh, debate unfolds inside the country. But outside the country, uh, definitely here in the U.S., the, ma the main job is to put pressure on the government in our case, the U.S. government, to uh, uh, end its economic sanctions, uh, provide money to those who need it, to help others uh, who are hungry, uh, and uh, not do what it normally does, as it's done to Venezuela, Cuba, and other countries' uh, embargoes. So demand that that not happen and separate uh, the discussion about uh, what the Taliban is or isn't to the fact that you you have to defend all Afghan people uh, right now, and I think that that is an, an important fight. And there are many people uh, on the progressive left in this country who do understand that and do see that as an important point, whatever they think about the Taliban or or, or different groups uh, inside Afghanistan. So that that will be you know an ongoing fight. Um, I do believe on they will leave the U.S. on uh, by August 31st. I do believe they're going to continue their uh, war on terror, but it's going to be in a different form. And the next phase of the struggle uh, is what I just said. I think from uh, those of us outside of the, that area need to uh, make sure that people get the help uh, and so on. Now, w one final point on the refugees. Now, of course, the refugees, people who want to leave should be allowed to leave, especially activists like women for women's rights if they want to leave and others. Many people will not leave, not just those who can't leave, 
uh, because they will try to, you know, see how they can f function in that environment. Uh, so, yes, that they, they need to get his, those who want to leave should be able to leave and they should be able to settle. Uh, that's another fight in the U.S. Uh, they don't, they, the, the, the right wing in this country does not like immigrants and they don't want them in the country. Uh, but, you know, the Biden administration says they'll bring in at least 50,000 Afghans inside. Uh, so that's important, another important demand. All right. You're listening to Green Left Radio, and you were just listening to um, a speech by Malik Mia, um, U.S. socialist, and who was speaking at a public forum that took place last weekend, um, titled "The the, um, the U.S. Withdraw on from Afghanistan: A Left Perspective." And just as another plug, you can read up, you can actually watch all the talks from that public forum on the Green Left website if you go on to greenleft.org.au. Now, the next kind of story, just to have a bit, we have it, we have an interview coming up um, shortly, but I thought I would give a bit of, um, uh, I would have a bit of a kind of discussion about this kind of news story, um, which is, it's a bit of a, an amusing one, but also a bit of a, it's quite screwed up in terms of the government. But basically, coalition MPs are actually kind of pushing for more school chaplains um, to be funded within schools. And just to give a bit of context, school chaplains are like religious sort of... Chloe, they, you remember? They're, sort um, of like, they're kind of like religious sort of Most counselors. of them are Christian, I think. Yeah, mostly yeah. kind of Christian. And essentially, yeah, the coalition wants these group of people who are not mental health professionals or anything to be funded in schools in place of, say, school counsellors and, and and so on. Yeah, if students have a, a, a problem at school, they're usually sent to the... If they have school chaplains, like, it's an option for them to go speak to them about a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So one of the... But one of the sort of funny things about this sort of story is the reason that the coalition mm. government wants to fund more school chaplains is that they're pop they're wo they're worried about children apparently are suffering mentally due to alarmist climate activism <laughs> and and essentially um, they're saying that global warming alarmism is causing mental health problems in the young and uh, essentially what 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 that is code for is essentially the government is saying that um, these coalition MPs are essentially saying that um, the true science of climate change and climate catastrophe and the inaction of governments like ourselves who are doing nothing to address climate change is actually contributing <laughs> to mental health problems in school. And that's why we need more uh, school chaplains in, in, in schools. Like, I, I think it's, yeah, it's so bizarre. Um, but I think there's also another side to this story. I mean, the other side to the story is that, you know, we know that the coalition government depends on a very right-wing kind of religious sort of base. And, in fact, yeah. the government is attempting to sort of pass this religious discrimination bill that we should probably have a discussion about at a future kind of program. And, yeah, it's essentially this is a way of kind of catering to their right-wing kind of religious sort of base um, to essentially win votes. Like, it's, it's quite despicable, I think. And, you know, the fact that, you know, the government is completely, you know, as we've sort of said regularly in our program, is completely committed to 
fossil fuels. Mm. They committed to just essentially destroying the the planet. And you know, the the fact is that you know, there's quote, <laughs> there's even quotes saying that you know. Uh, where, where, you know, the misinformation of the Greens and climate activism groups who are, who are trying to make the argument that the coalition government is actually not doing enough to address climate change. And well, actually, it's true. And if, yeah. and if people, mm-hmm. um, and if children are actually having mental health problems as a result of, you know, feeling existential about this kind of impending climate crisis, like, you know, that it's all on, this failure, the failure of these capitalist governments and the, um, that this is a cause and, and it's not going to be addressed by, you know, trying to push, you know, a religious, um, push sort of Christianity and, you know, sort of very sort of, um, in this kind of particular way, um, in a, in a sec, in a, in a secular country like Australia. Yeah. It just sort of boggles kind of the mind, really. Yeah, this chaplaincy program um, is going to provide $20,000 to over 3,000 schools um, towards the $45,000 annual cost of a chaplain. Um, and they were also talking about, you know, comparing it to growing up in the 1970s and 80s during the threat of nuclear um, um, annihilation. I mean, it's just... It's just so ridiculous. This, you know, I mean, yeah, you're right, Jacob. Morrison is pandering to the religious right base and he's appealing to his, um, you know, religious, um, cohorts and, and promoting this, you know, also promoting the religious discrimination bill. Um, but, you know, pumping more money into hiring more chaplains in schools is not really going to help anyone cope with the climate crisis, you know, only meaningful action on climate change will do that and i think there's this kind of messaging that climate activists are being alarmist and you know it's very patronizing especially to children um you know it's just it's gaslighting and attempting to discredit school strikers and um you know anyone really who cares about the planet um if these politicians really did care about mental health or mental um or physical the physical health of of children um you know, they would support real action on on climate. These liberal MPs are just, you know, they're just saying children are suffering from, what did they say, um, alarmist climate <laughs> activism. Yeah. Um, it's just very, it just shows how dismissive these leaders are when it comes to the climate crisis and really um, shows what little respect they have to ensure that this world is safe for future generations. Hmm. Absolutely. And I guess, I mean, just um, this is a bit random, but um, I thought this would be a good, <laughs> interesting sort of thing to kind of name drop um, while we're sort of talking about this question around climate sort of alarmism and mental health and, and so on. There is actually a film that got released um, quite recently um, mm. called First Reformed that I recommend people check out. It's actually available mm. on Netflix. It is a film directed by Paul Schneider, um, who who is the who was the writer of the classic Martin Scorsese film Taxi Driver, and um, First Reformed is quite an interesting film politically on this question of climate change because it essentially revolves around a priest who has to who is tasked or asked to help out the husband of this woman, and essentially this husband is an environmental activist who is essentially suffering from an existential crisis because of oh. He, um, because of the impending climate crisis. And then, in fact, the, um, the show, the film gets even um, better in that sense politically because it goes and then starts exploring how, um, 
essentially the the church of um of the protagonist who is a priest is essentially complicit in selling off um their land to fossil fuel producers so in in the united states so yeah it is a very kind of pertinent kind of film to sort of um just mention um in this sort of first reformed so it is agreeable on netflix and yeah i thought i'd just mention it's quite it's definitely a sort of very relevant sort Mm. of film especially with everyone sort of in lockdown i think i definitely highly recommend it especially and it's definitely very relevant on this sort of topic of client analysis because actually in some sense i actually don't deny that they would be, you know, a lot of young people who are feeling, yeah. you know, a bit um, depressed about the kind of state of the future in the relation to climate change when you have governments who are, like, refusing to take sort of any action. And I think that's why it's been so important that those school strikes um, have and climate protests have happened in response to this climate crisis. Like, we need to be kind of mobilising on the streets. Yeah, Australia seems to be the only country in the world that is actually moving towards coal and gas. Hmm. Exactly. Anyway, I might just, I'll play a quick announcement and we're going to go on to our first um, live interview for the program. You are listening to Green Left Radio. We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we've got to have lots of changes. We need more problems if we just make it. All right, you are listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR Community Radio, and we are very happy to have on our program today Piper Rod, um, who is the NTU. Um, branch president of the uh, Deakin Univers at the Deakin at Deakin University and we have her on the program um because um basically it has been kind of reported um that more than 200 jobs could be cut at Deakin University under a proposed restructure in response to financial pressures caused by the pandemic so good morning piper good morning jacob all right, so maybe to start off, what can you tell us um, about this kind of proposed kind of restructuring by um, by Deakin University and its kind of implications for workers? Yeah, um, so I guess the first thing to say is that um, people were really quite shocked um, and really quite devastated. Um, the staff across the university went through, you might know, uh, a huge restructure and we lost um, almost, well, I think at least 400 jobs last year. Um, And so we were hoping, I suppose, that that was enough, um, given that this is all being sort of said to be, as you said in your intro, um, a result of you know, the pandemic and the economic climate that has affected universities because of um, 
the confluence of events in the last two years um, in the terms of the decline of, of international students being able to come because of closed borders, and um, which was sort of only exacerbated then with the Liberal government's um, federal changes to higher education funding at the end of last year, which, um, despite their rhetoric, effectively defunded public universities um, across the country. Um, so, you know, while that's certainly the rhetoric that universities are using to cut jobs um, across, you know, across the sector, across the country, um, we would sort of argue that this is not really necessary and it's certainly not inevitable. Um, so I think workers at Deakin this week were really, really quite dismayed and upset and shocked at um, the announcement, which came at a time of you know, absolute exhaustion. Workers are kind of already overloaded, taking on more and more work um, as a result of the cuts last year and the restructure, um, but also, of course, at a time of lockdown where people are having to work from home and juggle family responsibilities um, with no sort of rest, and they've had to. It's week seven in our semester at Deakin, and um, the parents and, you know, and, and all workers have had to um, move back to online work environments. Um, and the university has made no concession, unlike just about every university in Victoria, um, that you know, people have these competing pressures on them and are just exhausted and unable to sort of, you know, to keep going. And so instead of offering, um, you know, extra leave like other universities, RMIT, Monash, Melbourne have all done that, BU this week, I heard, um, in recognition of this extra pressure, Deakin University instead chose to make a, a really brutal announcement that um, you know, effectively cut you know, 200 people's livelihoods and careers. So essentially, we've um, because you just made the kind of comparison to other universities, essentially those 200 jobs are going to be cut with no compensation whatsoever? Uh, well, no, no. So, uh, well... Um, I mean, if you're an ongoing employee um, and your position is effectively made redundant, which is is what is sort of being foreshadowed, though we're not really sure um, exactly what this will look like, um, then you know, you the university is 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 contractually obliged through our EA to offer some sort of redundancy payout, but um, that will depend on a whole range of factors. Um, not least of all, you know, how long you've been um, a loyal employee of the university. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, one of the next kind of things as well is these kind of cuts, they're coming on, are they coming on top of already, of cuts that have already, because um, from my understanding, almost every kind of university last year, as a result of the pandemic, made all sorts of kind of job cuts, etc. Um, what was sort of the experience sort of last year? Um, I'm pretty sure Deacon went through, also did... Um, this is um, these job cuts would be on top of already kind of existing job cuts that would have were possibly would have been implemented last year. Is that is that the case? Yeah. Well, no. As I said, Jacob, like the, we actually Deakin was one of the first universities um, in the pandemic last year to to 
to cut workers and um they did it they so we we lost 400 workers none of those um none of those cuts last year were voluntary um so the university just sort of used the excuse of of, of a major workplace change um to to just get flash 400 jobs um out of hand and so, you know, as I said, we're really still sort of reeling from that in many in many practical ways because the work hasn't disappeared. I mean, if anything, you know, this myth that universities across the country who, you know, last year you might know the well-stated the well statistic um, is that approximately 20,000 Australian university workers lost their jobs. Um, and, of course, universities were not afforded JobKeeper Um Unlike just about yeah any other um, any other business as we as we now all know, um, who often profited very nicely out of JobKeeper. Um, so massive, you know, it was one of the worst, or probably you know the worst industry um, who has been hardest hit, and that yeah that the fact that this kind of continues, um, you know, if anything, work increase for, you know, teaching staff, um, administrative staff, all the support staff when everybody at university had to go online. And so now we're proposing another 200 on the back of 400 jobs, at least last year, um, which is a massive, um, a massive cut. Mm. And this comes at a time when we have, it's not like our student numbers are down. We have more students than ever before because of the the nature of the um, federal government funding arrangements. That means effectively we have to do less, more with less, hmm. less money per student. And in terms of that, in terms of like going into kind of like what is going to be, I guess, um, what is like it, there's apparently um, con- there's going to be consultation. The, the university management is going to be opening up kind of consultation about this sort of planned kind of restructuring for kind of like the next two weeks. And I guess what is what is the kind of union, especially in terms of the Deakin University NTU branch, going to kind of do in response and what are workers going to kind of be demanding? Obviously, there'll be a demanding of not these cuts shouldn't happen obviously at all, but I guess what other kind of political demands are you going to try and put on to Deakin University to, you know, avoid this kind of cut, um, these cuts, to fight against yeah. these cuts, essentially? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, so I guess the first thing to note is um, the, the members of the Deakin NTU um, branch yesterday um, had a meeting where over 200 um Members across the university attended, and we passed a motion calling on the university um, to stop um, these uh, the proposal. Um, and we've rejected. Members voted to overwhelmingly to reject um, the proposal outright, um, saying that it was. We feel largely that it it's legitimate, illegitimate, and um, unfair, um, and. Um, we yeah, we also feel really strongly that the the proposed two week consultation um, coming at a time, as I say, of immense stress for workers across the university um, is just completely inadequate to address the sort of range and breadth of the sweeping changes that they're proposing. Um, so 
you know, if the university is serious, uh, as they claim they are, that they want input and that this is not written in stone and this is a genuine consultation for what they're proposing that comes as, you know, largely without warning. I mean, the details of this plan are quite extensive and um, until this week, nobody had really seen any of the any of the details. So, you know, it, it's just a kind of impossible ask um, to genuinely engage with this process and, and see it as legitimate if that, you know, given the way that the university has gone about it. Hmm. And I guess um, we're getting into, I guess, um, a, bit, a bit out of time now, so it's a, a, we have, I guess, time for some final comments. I guess um, in terms of, like, any kind of final comments you'd kind of like to make, um, especially how people can, you know, support um any um, workers taking kind of action against this, but also maybe also have any comments about, I guess, your kind of political analysis on, you know, the kind of root kind of causes, because ultimately one of the uh, the elephant in the room in terms of what is forcing all these um, university managements, although that's not defending um, what these university managements are doing, but there is this material pressure from the fact that the federal government has essentially gutted higher mm-hmm. education throughout this whole pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, both really good questions. Um, <clears throat> it, yeah, again, I would sort of stress that, you know, this is not inevitable. The, gut, the, the university could um, look at other ways. It's not like Deakin, you know, is sort of poor. Um, and, you know, we sort of think that they're the first recourse of university management through this whole pandemic has been to to do away with their greatest resource at a time when the country needs, you know, bright minds, good ideas, well-educated people more than ever before. Um, so, you know, we we really would argue strongly that this is, you know, there are alt- there are always alternatives, and this whole idea, you know, this has been termed um, as Deacon reimagined. Um, meant to make us more vibrant um, as a university community, and you know, it, it's just um, it's just doing the opposite. Like it's just, yeah, you know, people are absolutely demoralised and um, exhausted, and yeah, you know, there there are there are always alternatives. And I would point out, you know, the the kind of you said the elephant in the room. I mean, the elephant in the room for our university and for all universities in Australia is that at a time when high public higher education is funded at an all-time low and you know we fund public education including universities in this country as one of the lowest rates of any developed country in the world we're like 35 of 38 OECD countries or something and yet our vice chancellors as your listeners will know make more money than almost any any vice chancellor you know any university executive in the world so our own vice chancellor, for instance, had his salary increased um, from seven hundred and twenty thousand last year to um, nine hundred thousand on the back of four hundred people losing their jobs. So, you know, and and comparable sort of inflation of executive salaries. So none of which is transparent, I should note. Um, so you know, this, this idea that we need to just cut and cut and cut um, is. Yeah, you know, I would say needs to be reimagined. Hmm. 
Well, that's um, definitely a very kind of good note to kind of um, end on. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much, Piper, for being on our program today. And, yes, we um, definitely give you all the solidarity um, we can in, in your struggle against um, university management um, um, going ahead with these cuts. And, yeah, we hope we wish you all the best in terms of fighting this. Thanks very much, Jacob. All right. Thank you, Piper. Okay. All right, um, so we are just um, having a discussion with Piper Rod, who is the NTU branch president uh, at Deakin University, and we're, um, this was in response to the fact that the Deakin University management is attempting to go ahead with a restructuring of the university that will lead to over 200 job losses. And, of course, as we kind of discussed on the program, um, we discussed with Piper, that's on top of all the kind of existing kind of cuts that were all kind of implemented last year in response to the pandemic so yeah um i'll like um i'll go um i'll just play a quick announcement and we'll go on to um we'll go on to the green left activist calendar you are listening to green left radio to enable change we need to show broad community support show your support for walking and cycling in the city of yarra by appearing as a champion on the streets alive website representing your local street neighborhood or school it's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. <laughs> 3CR, always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out, to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio, and it is just time, a bit of time to go with the Green Left Activists um, calendar. Now, all, well, it's looking like, because um, as I kind of implied before, we are in indefinite lockdown in Melbourne um, for now. Um, there doesn't seem to be any sign of easing or shifting anytime soon. So all these events that are going to be happening are all going to be happening online. Um, this week. So just to give a, a, a bit of a plug. Um, so on today, on Friday, um, there's going to be a Melbourne Rider Festival um, event, um, which is by, which is where celebrated um, Irish Nigerian author Emma Darbury talks about her expertly outlined treat, treatise on race, class and capitalism. So um, she's going to be that's going to be she's going to be speaking at 8 p.m. and you can book a session for that at the Melbourne Writers Festival because that's um that's an event that's part of the Melbourne Writers Festival. Another event that's going to be happening is a is this is going to be um, a, a public event organised by Australian Parents for Climate Action, but it's going to be special IPCC briefing with Professor Leslie Hughes, um, and that's going to be happening on Friday, September, um, 3rd of September, 1 to 2 p.m. by Zoom. Um, so that's um, going to be an, kind of another event. Um, and then the third event is um, Ligua 
Ignota. Oh no, sorry, sorry, wrong. Sorry, I'm looking at the wrong. I'm reading the wrong thing. Sorry. I was reading the next. I was sort of going into the next thing we're going to talk about. Sorry, get it. Uh, sorry. And okay, so then the next event is there's going to be on Sunday, September the fifth. There's going to be an online forum, Refugee Rights Overboard, twenty years on from the Tampa. And that's going to be an event organised by the Canberra Refugee Action Campaign. Um, so there, that's essentially the equivalent to um, Refugee Action Collective in Canberra. And there, so they're going to be organising an online forum on Sunday. And then on Tuesday, September the 7th, there's going to be an Afghan uh, online forum, Afghan Refugee Emergency, Let Them All In, Permanent Visas Now, which is going to be, uh, it's going to be an event organised by the Refugee Action Coalition in Sydney. So yeah, essentially there's a lot of interstate events that are kind of happening. Probably one of the benefit, the beneficial parts of, um, of this sort of Zoom era is you can, um, you can hook into Different political events organised by all sorts of different groups from across the country. So, yeah, that's a bit of a positive. In the comfort of your own home. Yeah, in the comfort of your own home. And then there's going to be on Wednesday, September the 8th, there's going to be an online book launch, John Safran in Conversation at 6.30 kind of p.m. on Wednesday, September the 8th. On Thursday, September the 9th, um, there's going to be an online forum, Fighting the Neoliberal University at 2 p.m., um, at um, and that's going to be um, that's that's an online event. I think that's organised by I think it's organised by a sort of um, by um, by an it's a workshop organised by an activist, Kelton Moore. And I think yeah, it's actually it's actually technically a University of Sydney campus sort of forum, but yeah, it's online. So essentially, you can, um, you can it might it might be more interesting for University of Sydney students, but you know if you're a University student and want to come along, it, it's more I think you're probably apparently more than welcome to come along. Then on, um, on, there's going to be another online forum, um, a Better Buses, um, campaign launch. And so that's going to be organized by sustainable kind of cities. And that's going to be happening at 6 p.m. Wednesday, September the 15th. And then on Wednesday, September the 15th, there's going to be an online forum, um, the power of protest. Um, oh, these are all taking place literally at the same time. There's another one Wednesday, um, September the 15th, online forum, West Papua, finding a way forward. Um, and then the other event is there's going to be an online book launch, Empowering Women, the Right to Choose at 7pm, Wednesday, September the 15th. So there's like four to five different sort of events mm-hmm. if you're kind of interested um, happening online. And then on Sunday, September the 26th, there's going to be an online forum, Escape from Manus, um, Javiet Arlum speaks on his new book at 11am. So yeah, that's all, that's the different kind of events sort of coming up. And I guess just to highlight the other special event is there's going to be an online sort of conference, um, the Eco-Socialism 2021, um, which is going to be happening from October 23rd to October 24th. So, yeah, hope um, listeners, um, yeah, enjoy. You can get some of these events up online on greenleft.org.au. All right, so I might just go play um, a quick um, a quick announcement and we'll go on to the next part of the program. You are listening to Green Left Radio. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at this station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. The Black Lives Matter movement is not going away here or overseas. 
It gives me hope seeing the numbers of people that turn out to these Invasion Day demonstrations in Melbourne. It gives me the understanding that we will win, folks. We will succeed! Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, radio, and we'll just um, we just did the Green Left kind of activist calendar, and now it's time to give a bit of a, a kind of um, we've been mean um, our presenter Zane kind of suggested we try and do this for our, our program, but this is um, highlighting um, this is an article on GreenLeft.org.au, but basically Matt Ward, who we interviewed previously on our program, he is essentially a, a music kind of correspondent for Green Left, and he does a bit of a album kind of roundup every sort of week or every month, um, basically recommending sort of 10 sort of very kind of political kind of albums and so this one is 10 brilliant new albums to unfuck the world and um these are sort of like some of the best sort of political music that came part um came out in the past uh, month in august um so the first album to kind of give a bit of a highlight to is um selpo shura um selpo which is like I think a mech, it's like a heavy metal kind of band that have done a number of different they're like Brazilian thrash metal band that has done a, a number of kind of different um, a, a new album and they've done a lot of um, a lot of their music um, has kind of like tributes to like indigenous people resistance etc uh, the coronavirus pandemic etc so yeah that's um, that's their new album that got released as sort of the number one kind of recommendation and then the next um, album is uh, by an hip hop artist homeboy Sandman, um, who has recently um, released a kind of MP that is actually produced by um, one of the more prominent sort of alternative hip-hop um, rappers, um, Isulp Rock, um, that some people have probably um, heard of. Anyway, he's um, he's just did a sort of um, EP, um, and, recent, and some of the, the sort of highlights includes a, a song about sort of um, exploring the kind of um, virtues of kind of veganism and criti- um, being critical of um, cattle farming. The next kind of album is... Um, Lingua Gnota, Sina Get Ready, I think, which is another kind of Mexican sort of um, group. And yeah, they came, um, they have a, they have a um, number of kind of very kind of political kind of songs. And um, yeah, I, don't, I, um, I think there's, there's more there. And then there's the fourth album is Maya Power, um, Both Ways Brighter. Um, which is basically, um, her, she ha- has a number of kind of different music, including criticizing the Bureau of Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And yeah, so there's, you can listen to that, um, that on, on Spotify as well. The next, um, album, and this is what I'll play a song from this shortly, um, which is, is it's an album by Hughes Taylor called Modern Nostalgia, who's a singer songwriter. And their new album features a, um, features a song, um, called The Refugee, which I'll be playing quite shortly after this. So yeah, actually, it probably is probably a bit better, probably just to, um, maybe I'll play the song soon and, um, that's just some of the highlights from the 10 albums 
the 10 brilliant new albums um, that Matt Ward kind of recommends. And you can actually re- read this up online at Green Left and see all the albums that are available um, that he, uh, Matt Ward recommends on the Green Left website. Go on to greenleft.org.au um, and go into the cultural section and it should be on the top of the page. So, yeah. Yeah, they're hope. really good recommendations. Um, yeah, add them to your Spotify. Mm. Anyway, um, in the kind of interest, I'll play a bit of a song from, um, from one of the, one of the albums in the roundup and I'm going to be playing The Refugee by Hugh, um, Taylor. So yeah, hope listeners, um, enjoy. You're listening to Green Left Radio.
All right. You're listening to Green Left Radio, and you're just listening to The Refugee by Hughes Taylor, um, which is, which was taken from the 10, um, albums to, 10 brilliant albums to unfuck the world by Matt Ward, um, which is a rec- um, which is a, el- a monthly Melbourne album roundup that he does every month for Green Left. And yeah, you can go on the Green Left website, as I kind of mentioned, and get, get a bit of, a, um, get a bit of a sense kind of there. Now, for the next kind of part of the program, I thought we would have a bit of a discussion. I'm, draw- I'm taking drawing from one of the green um, from the green left um, from a green left article. Put public health before corporate profits, and this is um, the latest kind of fighting fund column for Green Left, which is sort of like essentially tries to promote sort of be a column on uh, editorial column on promoting um, you know the importance of sort of gr- the Green Left kind of project. Now, to go- to to start a bit of kind of discussion, um, Peter Boyle kind of writes that. If there was any, if anyone had any doubt, um, because basically the federal government is pushing, you know, is pushing this sort of idea of reopening, um, at like 80% kind of vaccination kind of rate. And of course, their, their campaign is around essentially lifting COVID-19 restrictions and essentially lifting lockdown because, you know, as Scott kind of, Scott Morrison kind of describes, we need to get out of the cave, um, so to speak. Now, Peter Boyle kind of writes here that, you know, if there was kind of any doubt that, you know, this campaign is, um, if, if whose interests that are being served by this kind of campaign, there was a September 1st open letter from the CEOs of, um, 80 of Australia's biggest, um, corporations. This, um, open letter, um, was essentially calling on the Morrison government to open up. And essentially it, um, it, it's, it, it started off by saying, you know, the open letter, um, acknowledged the effectiveness, um, in, of lockdowns in suppressing the virus last year and in slowing its spread today while we vaccinate the population, but also quickly added as vaccination rates, it will become necessary to open up society and live with the virus in the same way that other countries have done. Now, Peter Boyle writes that live with the virus is um, corporate Australia's slogan of the day, but what will this kind of mean for the community? And Peter Boyle kind of, um, there's various kind of sources that are kind of drawn from from here, but the Australian Institute, Ben Ockless, responded on Ticker News um, saying that we don't want to have a plan that living with COVID becomes dying with COVID. And... The prime, at this kind of same time, the Prime Minister, um, Scott Morrison and Federal Treasurer and New South Wales Premier Gladys Bakshani and the 80 corporate CEOs all demand that state governments commit to a, um, to a national plan to transition Australia's COVID-19 response agreed to in late July by the National Cabinet. But as Oculus told Ticker News, the danger is that big business is pushing the government to do something that is not as concurrent as people think. There's not necessarily a Freedom Day coming when borders will magically open up and all lockdowns will be gone and all restrictions will be lifted. And he points out that, you know, states will be acting differently and, of course, it will be dependent on the levels of vaccination and their levels of vaccination spread. The coalition politicians wave around the Doherty report, but neglect to mention that even it concedes that many other factors will shape what needs to be done. When Australia, when Australia reaches 70 to 80% adult vaccination levels and that we've learned from watching, um, 
other countries that have removed all restrictions that there is no Freedom Day. And of course, the Dorothy Report assumes that not only high levels of vaccination, and we um, are nowhere near that, but also a good health system and, and the ability to contract, trace and test. And of course, even with these brave assumptions, the Dorothy Report predicted that opening up at 90-70% vaccination coverage of the adult population with partial health measures would predict 385,000 symbolic cases and 1,457 deaths over six months. We can already see that this in New South Wales, where daily new cases are now over the 1,000 mark, that hospitals are under stress and the contract tracing system can't, can't keep up. We've also seen in New South Wales how COVID-19 hits the most exploited and marginalised sections of the, of the population harder. Meanwhile, there are also gross disparities in vaccination levels between rich and poor and between First Nation people and others. And, of course, you know, the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation on August 1st um, wrote to Scott Morrison requesting that no further steps to reopening are taken until the healthcare system capacity was expanded and there was a proper assessment of safe vaccination targets, including vulnerable populations and other hard, high-risk groups, the impact of Delta and future variants on children and contract tracing capacity. And, you know... Peter Boyle kind of concludes that, you know, they, these are all important kind of issues to the community. And of course, at Green Left, you know, we put, have more faith in nurses than in overpaid corporate CEOs and the politicians you, who serve them. So yeah, I guess, I mean, do you, what are your sort of, some of your comments, Chloe, on some of these sort of themes that sort of brought up by this sort of Green Left article? I mean, I guess we can see the power of the, the billionaire class here has over important public um, health decisions when just a handful of CEOs, um, you know, all they have to do is send an open letter and suddenly the government feels pressured to, to open things up. And, you know, I mean, that's that's pretty disturbing that, I mean, the, the Doherty report, I mean, that gets thrown around a lot. Um, a lot is based on the Doherty report, but that's interesting that even according to that report, opening up at 70%, um, it's predicted, the Doherty report actually predicts that there, there will be over 1,000 deaths, 1,457 deaths over six months. Um, and like this article, uh, like Peter Boyle points out in this article, right now, New South Wales are, have experienced, um, you know, their, their cases are now over 1,000 1, um, cases, you know, it's and their hospitals are under stress, even with 1,000 cases. So, I mean... Even according to their own, like, health advice, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just amazing how just a few individuals can pressure this government um, just to, to do what they want. Hmm. Yeah, and I guess um, some other sort of analysis I sort of have as well is, I mean, one of the things as well, I don't, I'm not that convinced that, I mean, because I guess one of the issues we have to sort of acknowledge is that, you know, we have been in lockdown for kind of a very kind of long time, mm-hmm. like it seemed, especially in the case of New South Wales and Victoria. And as I, we sort of said at the start of the program, we have been in lockdown from the kind of the beginning. And I think, yeah, it's, it is important to acknowledge that, you know, people are probably being fatigued by this lockdown and probably they probably do see that, you know, opening up is a bit, does give a bit of kind of hope. And I think... From my perspective, I don't think I'm against, I'm not against the idea of us opening up easing restrictions at some point in the future. But I think the clear sort of position, you know, left wing people need to have is that if we are going to open up, 
um, it has to be done safely. And I just don't not think that mm. rushing to sort of ease all kind of restrictions at 80% vaccination rate is sufficient. Uh, and in fact, um, you know, even in countries where they've had high vaccination rates are still suffering from massive cases of outbreaks. Yeah. Um, like, for example, in um, Britain, they, they have um, Britain's having like 100 deaths a day still from COVID, although the... The, the results have stabilised to a sense, and that's really the impact of the COVID-19 vaccine. Mm-hmm. And that's in the context where essentially restrictions are essentially all ease. In fact, I was watching the English Premier League game the other day, and it was pretty shocking to see crowds um, mm-hmm. at the football stadium. But, I mean, yeah, it's... um. And then um, in the US, they're still having outbreaks of cases, although they have a bit of a, a more complicated problem. Um, that is that they are, there's actually high rates of vaccine refusal in Republican kind of base states. And of course, in the states of Texas, they're the ones that are having uh, more issues than, say, a state like, say, New York, for example. And then um, in Israel is also another case where Israel is even considering kind of going through um, lock, I think it's considering going through lockdowns or some heightened restrictions in, in the event of um, losing control of COVID-19 cases. And that's in the context of Israel being much, actually, Israel is probably much more advanced in terms of mm. vaccination rates than any country in the world. I mean, at the same time, I just also want to acknowledge that, I mean, they're vaccinating Israelis, but they're not vaccinating um, Palestinians. Oh, yeah. So, I mean... That's that's the, that's the nature of an apartheid state for you, but I think yeah, there's um that 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 I think shows all the problems. So I think really, I mean, in actual fact, I think you know if the gov if the federal government is going to open up, I think it has to be do it has to be driven by a public health response, and it shouldn't be driven by this sort of sense of oh we need to go back to sort of normal and come out in, of the cave and come, freedom days. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like I think you know really if the the government should be expanding its vaccine mm-hmm. right as far as well. It should be committing to expanding the kind of the healthcare system. Um, it should be doing its best with the current lockdown context um, to drive down cases as much as it possibly can. Because, you know, if New South Wales and Victoria are essentially locking down, uh, if we're essentially being locked down to, uh, to just wait until the vaccination rate's going up, why isn't the government taking other measures to actually help reduce cases? Like, as I said, they could be expanding welfare. Um, they could be implementing more protections of essential workers. Mm-hmm. Um, they could be doing all, they could be implementing all these sort of measures in the meantime, um, to actually drive down the COVID cases. Now, who knows? Um, COVID elimination might be completely unrealistic in the context of, um, in the context of where we're at in this pandemic, but really the governments should be and ought to be doing far more than what they're currently doing. And I don't think it's actually acceptable to just actually put us into this sort of lockdown, which I think is completely justified in the context of, you know, um, preventing hospitalisation, saving lives. Like, that's all good, well and good, but the government should be making more use of this um, lockdown and not just relying on vaccination um, to drive down cases. Yeah, totally agree. Um also, um, you can become part of the solution um, by, you know, supporting Green Left, um, Green Left's people-powered media project. So, yeah, please consider making a donation to our fighting fund and becoming an ongoing Green Left supporter. Yeah. Yeah.
Well, um, I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week. We're getting um, to the end of the program. I um, hope everyone is coping all right in, um, on lockdown in, in, the, in this kind of hard kind of time. But, yeah, Free CR and Green Left Radio is going to continue to kind of air. Um, we'll, give you all, we'll continue to try and give as much left-wing kind of socialist analysis on the kind of current affairs and events of the day. So, yeah, I'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in this week and um, stay tuned for next week and for Green Left Radio. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call one 634 Arise, you workers from the slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that.